The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 29 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed in the show are my own and not that of my present or past employers. I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to or a result of my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have had held in the past with the United States government, and nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. So before we get started, I want to remind our listeners that you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Another very informative show with Adriana Sanford last week, and having her legal expertise to tap into was very timely considering the Facebook hearings and the data privacy issues that are on the world stage right now. So, you know, speaking of which, you know, last night, Alexander Kogan, the Cambridge analytical developer who has essentially been portrayed as a demon by Facebook and many other liberal pundits who have singled him out, really, over the last couple of weeks, he appeared on 60 Minutes and he gave a totally different perspective on what he did with his application and how he did it. And it was very interesting, to say the least. It definitely was enlightening for the average Facebook user who is concerned about cybersecurity and data security and privacy on Facebook, especially with their own data. And in my opinion, his interview must have given Facebook just a little bit of heartburn. But Leslie Stahl started out the 60-minute segment like this. Facebook and its CEO, Mark Zuckerberg, are in a whale of trouble. Now, I knew right away when I saw that that it wasn't going to be good for Facebook, and it outlined some things. It was really, really informative. I mean, it's a 15- or 20-minute segment of 60 Minutes that seemed to be more informative than days of testimony uh, on the Hill. But, you know, look, I'm, I'm going to give some analysis on what Kogan said, and I'm also going to give my thoughts on the cybersecurity domain and cybercrime and investigations, focusing on card payment fraud for this episode. So we got a couple of guests coming up in the, the second and the third episode of the show to talk about card fraud and card risk. But before we get on to all that, Adriana Stanford, stepping up to the plate once again to talk about the privacy issues that major technology companies are facing in an environment that is relatively unregulated right now. But lawmakers have to decide if more regulation is needed. And if so, how far they're really going to take that regulation and how far that regulation should go to oversee the space. Uh, so, look, they have to do this to ensure that major technology companies like Facebook are adhering to the rules that are already in place, such as the 2011 FTC consent decree we went over in last week's show. Now, we're not going to go over it in this week's show. We already went over everything. But if you missed the overview of the FTC consent decree on Facebook and Adriana Sanford analysis on what needs to be done moving forward, look, I urge you to find your favorite playback medium, find Task Force 7, subscribe to the show. It's always important that you subscribe, folks, and look for the latest episode. That's episode number 28 named, Did Facebook Violate the 2011 Consent Decree with the FTC? 
and Adriana Sanford appears on the second and third segments of the show. Great stuff. So to answer the most common question I still get about the show, you can find TF7 Radio on a total of nine different playback mediums, including iTunes.com, Google Play, TuneIn.com, Stitcher.com, Player.fm, Overcast.fm, ListenNotes.com, the show's very own website at Task47Radio.com, and of course, the number one internet talk radio producer in the world at VoiceAmerica.com. So in all... Nine different options to get your TF7 radio fixed. We're everywhere. You can't miss us. If you just Google Task Force 7 radio, you get all your options. Check us out, folks. TF7 radio playback at your convenience, 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And please, 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 please don't forget to subscribe. It's very important. Hey, look, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on LinkedIn by searching at Task Force 7 radio and on Facebook, Twitter, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 radio. It's a lot for one guy to keep up with, I admit. It's, it's only me on the social media accounts right now, but I'm going to do my best, and I've been doing pretty good keeping up with everything. And most of all, look, the social media accounts are a great way to interact with the audience on topics that are discussed on TF7 episodes. So it's a lot of fun there. For any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, as well as any other business communications, please email me directly at george.redis at taskforce7radio.com. That's george.redis at taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. So we're going to have credit card fraud expert Tom Pageler and Visa Risk Executive Eduardo Perez on the show this evening. And the theme is going to be focused on card fraud and mobile payments fraud and risk. So I can't think of two better guys to have on the show to talk about these topics in the cybercrime domain. Many of you have listened to the show know Tom Pager. He's appeared on the show several times before. Tom is a, a former Secret Service agent where he investigated many high-profile card fraudsters. And he is a former executive with Visa, where he was the director of card risk. And he helped drive the creation of the PCI DSS, which is the Payment Card Industries Data Security Standard, which I will be asking him about. He's also an executive, uh, or a former executive, with J.P. Morgan Chase, where he was the director of card fraud investigations and actually represented J.P. Morgan Chase from the issuing side on the PCI board. And he's currently the chief risk and chief security officer of Newstar. So Tom is no doubt one of the top card fraud and risk guys in the country, and he'll be joining us for the second segment of the show. Well, he's going to help us set the tone for our second guest on the show tonight, Eduardo Perez. So Eduardo Perez is the Senior Vice President and Regional Risk Officer for Visa's Latin America and Caribbean Divisions. Now, I've known Eduardo for a long time. I've known him for many years. And he has led many different card and mobile payment risk teams at Visa during his time there. I think he's been there since about 2002. So lots of experience in the card fraud space and card risk space. So he's led Visa's cross-company team in creating Visa's US EMV chip roadmap and security innovation agenda to eliminate, protect, and devalue card data. And he's managed Visa's response, investigation, and resolution to some of the largest processor and merchant payment data breaches in United States history. Lots of experience to tap into here. Look, he's got a bachelor's degree from Berkeley and a master's degree from Harvard. I mean, you know, of course he does. Of course, of course he does. I mean, everybody has one of those, right? And he speaks several languages. So you're going to want to stay tuned for this guy, Eduardo Perez, coming up on the third segment of the show. So getting back to this 60 Minutes uh, segment from last night, it was very interesting. I found it very interesting. And um, 60 Minutes is a great show. Uh, So this guy, Kogan, that everyone's throwing darts at, he's a computer scientist that harvested data from Facebook users and the main charge against him is that he harvested the Facebook user data and then sold the data. So in this case, for analysis for the last presidential election, which 
no matter what side of the aisle you're on in the United States right now, is likely to strike a chord with you, right? So Kogan says that he thought that he was doing everything the right way, and he basically thought that everyone must have known that developers were collecting and aggregating user data from Facebook to sell and use for other legitimate business purposes. So, by the way, I mean, the Trump campaign actually states that they did not use the Cambridge Analytical data in their election campaign, but no one really cares about the facts when it comes to Trump, it seems. They just like to keep clamoring on and calling for Kogan to be drawn and quartered out in front of the flagpole at Facebook headquarters, right? But no one wants to even listen to that. There was like one line even on the 60 Minutes episode last night, but other, otherwise it was just, you know, some of these things which, which, you know, were very interesting, right? So Kogan came across as anything but sinister to me. In this interview, I mean, he did not come across as sinister. And at one point, Stahl actually called him guileless. <laughs> but what was interesting about the interview is that Kogan pointed out that tens of thousands of developers were using Facebook in the same way he was. In his mind, it was tens of thousands in his opinion. And he suggested that he was just being singled out because of the politically sensitive topic that he apparently did his research for, even claiming that he had no idea who Steve Bannon was at some point in the interview. So Kogan pointed out that very rightfully so, I believe in my mind, that he was not exploiting a bug in Facebook's platform, but a feature that was commonly used and it seems abused for many, many years now. And I think that it's important for people to understand this, okay? So it got a little worse for Facebook when a former Facebook employee appeared on the show to throw gas on the fire, advising Stahl that as part of his job responsibility of working on data security for Facebook, he advised Facebook executives numerous times that there was a problem with this data being shared and it being so easily accessible by developers, especially because after the data left the building, Facebook had absolutely no control over what happened with the data after that. So he said that he claimed that as, as this former Facebook employee, that he brought this to Facebook's uh, executives' attentions numerous, numerous times. He explained that this feature being exploited was called friend permissions, right? So this is a feature that was actually built into Facebook. I just want to keep repeating that because this is not a bug, folks. This is not someone, this is not a developer who hacked in or stole information. And I see a lot of that on the internet. I see a lot of that in the news, and it seems to be just completely false, right? So the former employee opined further that Facebook just didn't want to know the feature was being used that way. They just didn't want to know. Because they, if they acknowledged the fact, if they acknowledged the issue, that they, they somehow took greater responsibility for the lack of data privacy around user information, more so than if they just ignored it, which, if true shows an incredible lack of business acumen and maturity on the part of Facebook executives, which is, I guess, what might happen when you build a multi-billion dollar company out of your dorm room with no real business experience to guide your decisions. And look, and that's not a crack at Zuckerberg, by the way. It might sound like one, but it's not. It's just sort of the truth, right? That's just a fact. I mean, being able to claim ignorance is not going to get you anywhere in this business environment. And having no business experience to understand that puts you at a major disadvantage in the business world. It's just a fact, right? So I'm not going to get on the Zuckerberg beatdown train here, that's for sure, but because in my opinion, he owned about 80% of the congressmen and women who tried to question him during those recent hearings. So, but here is the, here's one of his biggest points. Okay. This is one of his biggest points. And in my opinion, this is where Zuckerberg has, has a point that you have to ask yourself, well, what's the deal with this? And this is the place where I sort of take exception to Kogan's story, right? When Zuckerberg was asked about the Cambridge analytical event during the congressional hearings, he responded by saying this, if a developer who people gave their information to, in this case, Alexander Kogan, then goes in violation of his agreement with us, sells the data to Cambridge Analytica, that's a big issue. People have the right to be upset. I am very upset. 
I am very upset that that happened. So now there's some melodramatic comments here by Zuckerberg, right? right? But in his defense, in Zuckerberg's defense, Facebook says, the developer policy says at Facebook that developers are not allowed to transfer or sell any data they collect from Facebook. It says it right there. You cannot do this. This is exactly what Kogan did. And Kogan's response to Zuckerberg's answer to that is that, well, I don't, I don't even think I read the developer policy. I mean, what? People, how long are we going to accept excuses about users or customers or, or developers or clients, whoever, not reading the policy that they agreed to when using applications and somehow, because they didn't even read it or understand the policy, they cannot be held accountable for their actions when using the application or the associated data it contains? How many times... Have we heard that, yes, uh, the, the company did lay out the rules and the user acceptance agreement or the terms of service or some sort of policy that the excuse is, well, no one really reads that stuff anyway. I mean, no one really reads that stuff or that's, it's just the fine print. And so I can't be held accountable for that. What are companies actually expected to do? Are they expected to have phone calls with each and every customer to ensure that they read and understand the agreements, that they quickly just click on OK or yes to when using applications of all sorts here? So I think Facebook would have something to fall back on here if it wasn't for the fact that Kogan's own user policy for the application he built with Facebook's knowledge completely contradicted Facebook's developer policy that we just went over. And his own policy, his user policy for his application actually says this. If you click OK, you permit us to disseminate, transfer, or sell your data, which again is in direct conflict with Facebook's developer policy. So clearly, Kogan was not trying to hide anything from Facebook or anyone else for that matter. He clearly didn't think he was doing anything untoward, right? And quite frankly, he does come across as very credible in this 60 Minutes interview. So again, no one ever said anything to him, despite the fact that a Facebook employee worked side by side with him to build the app which Facebook eventually shut down, as well as banning Kogan from even having a Facebook account. You know, the Facebook enforcer's out, you know, giving him the Facebook smackdown here, right? But meanwhile, Kogan's partner, his name is Joseph Chancellor, who helped him develop this application, actually works for Facebook today. I mean, he works there right now. So what's the deal with that? It certainly implies that Facebook knew of Kogan's intentions, even though they explicitly deny knowing anything about his work at Cambridge Analytica, which seems impossible because Kogan's partner who helped him build the application is actually an employee of Facebook. So how's that work? How's that play out? And what's more, where Facebook really starts to lose some credibility, I think, here is that Kogan claims that he actually did consulting work for Facebook, which Facebook admits did happen periodically, where he laid out some of the lessons learned from his research on the Cambridge Analytica project that's in question here. So, so let's go over this, let's just summarize this real quick. Not only did Kogan tell Facebook in his own user policy that he was going to transfer and sell the data he collected from Facebook, he actually went back and told them what he did and what he learned from his research with that same data. So although Facebook admits that Kogan did consulting work with Facebook, they still deny knowing anything about his research with Cambridge Analytica, which between his own transparent user policy for his own application, his partnership with a former Facebook or a current Facebook employee, Joseph Chancellor, who helped him build the application, and his consulting work with Facebook to let them know what he discovered with this research from the Cambridge Analytica project, 
just seems more and more to be highly unlikely. All right. I want to remind our audience that we're getting closer to launching the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. I'm really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for more information on this much-needed and much-awaited-for network. We're going to solve some problems together, folks. I promise you. Task Force 7, get in the fight. We're going to pause for a few minutes for some words from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with our special guest, the CSO of New Star, Tom Pagler, and Senior Vice President of Visa, Eduardo Perez, to talk about card fraud and how far we've come after these short messages. Don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Higher education faces lots of changes. If you are a student, educator, or in the workforce, you'll want to tune into Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Your host, Dave Goldberg, and his guests will explore the innovations that higher education adopts as it reinvents itself. The world of higher education is constantly changing. Stay on top and stay ahead of the rest. Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Ritas. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Ritas. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm here with our special guest, credit card 
fraud expert and current chief security officer for Newstar, Tom Pager. Tom, welcome back to the show. Hey, George. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure to be here. So on prior episodes of TF7, our audience has uh, really loved some of the cybercrime capers we had. We had some former FBI guys come on, and we, uh, we've had some uh, former Secret Service agents as well. And they like learning about how these these cases actually play out on the federal level. And I was introducing you on the first segment as a former Secret Service agent who has a lot of experience in this, this space. So uh, you've had some pretty big uh, credit card fraud cases while you're with the Secret Service. Can you talk about some of the bigger cases that you've had, how you built them, and what some of the challenges that you faced while you were investigating credit card fraud criminals? Yeah, sure. Happy to. Uh, as I mentioned on previous episodes, I was running the Electronic Crimes Task Force uh, out here in the uh, Bay Area, uh, Silicon Valley, and obviously lots of uh, tech companies out here. This was back in uh, early 2000s, so companies like Google, uh, Visa, it's actually out here, uh, eBay, PayPal, Cisco, we're all actually kind of newer companies at the time. And credit cards were just starting to go online. So there's a lot of online fraud, you know, fraudulent uh, auction transactions, uh, fraud through merchants that maybe Google was uh, hosting, uh, different areas like that. So we started to work uh, some pretty big cases with our private partners and other law enforcement entities, such as the uh, FBI, as you mentioned, uh, IRS, actually, and U.S. Postal Service. We, uh, oh, so go ahead. No, go ahead. We actually identified a large group. Uh, it was uh, called the BOA Factory, uh, as in B-O-A. Uh, it was a play on words for both uh, B of A, the Bank of America, and BOA, the snake. Uh, it was definitely targeting the U.S., and it was run by Russian and Ukrainian uh, organized crime. And working with private industry and uh, other law enforcement entities, we were able to identify uh, two of the individuals. One of them was Maxim Kovolchuk. He was traveling in Thailand, was actually buying some uh, counterfeit software that he would then uh, uh, basically sell uh, online. And some of it would have backdoors in it and use it to go actually um, hack uh, merchants in other areas. And that was um, one of the big ones that we were tracking. And then the other one was uh, Roman Vega, who actually ran the site. He was Russian organized crime, was former uh, KGB, I think, before that. And he actually ran the whole site. So pretty interesting. We, we apprehended one in uh, Thailand and the other one in Cyprus and then extradited him back to the U.S. So these, these credit card uh, fraud organizations, these enterprise uh, criminal organizations, have they evolved? How different are they are today than they, they were back then? I mean, it's not the same as it was back then before, before Firewall and some of these uh, cases came out, right? Yeah, definitely different today. I mean, back then, uh, the internet was pretty new, online uh, transactions, online merchants, uh, people were just starting to buy things online. So you didn't have as many uh, safeguards. You didn't have the security that you have today that's evolved over time that I think we'll talk more about on this, se uh, this segment of the show. So back then, it was pretty, um, pretty easy pickings, I'd say, to, to go after this and, and basically steal credit card data and, uh, and or uh, steal merchandise online. Today, it's much more sophisticated. It's more difficult. There's a lot more, uh, there's giant fraud teams, security teams out there uh, defending against this. And actually, I think we're seeing kind of a transition from 
you know, credit card financial fraud to other areas that are, you know, the, what we'd call the slim pickings, the easier stuff today. So a lot of executives that I, I talk to, and, and this is a common question that's been asked for many, many years, and it seems to not go away. They ask, who's the best agency to work with on credit card cases? I know that you mentioned the postals, I think, you know, the FBI obviously does credit card cases, the Secret Service does cases. I usually tell them it's the agency that you have the best relationship with, but what's your thoughts on that? If you'd asked me back when I was in the Secret Service, I would have said the Secret Service. But uh, now that I'm in private practice myself, absolutely agree with you. It is the agency you have the best relationship with. And I, I think it varies, uh, to your point, uh, by location. Um, those who specialize, those who work well with people, you find good people throughout every agency. And I do agree. I think it's just who you have a good relationship with. If you start to work with someone and they work well with you, they understand you and you understand them, they get good cases, you get results that's where um, I would go. And if you don't have the relationships, work with others in the industry, talk to them, ask them who they recommend. If you can't find somebody, go to one of the task force meetings. Every agency's there. Find your most local task force. You can go to the Secret Service website, find the uh, uh, location of those, or just call your local FBI office, Postal Inspection Service office, or Secret Service office and uh, get a relationship built. So look, I, I think I know the answer to my, my next question, but I, I, you know, I, I want to ask it for my audience. And, um, and I think they think about this a lot and how serious fraud is actually taken from whether it's the, the banks or the issuers and the, uh, and the credit card companies and, and, and law enforcement in general. So but while at Visa, was credit card fraud thought of as something that was a cost of doing business? I know many organizations have a fraud line on their business. This is how much they expect in fraud. You know, it's almost like a, an accounting uh, issue. Or, or considering that some credit card fraud proceeds were actually used to fund terrorist activities and terrorist attacks and anti-Western uh, uh, missions, right? And did, did Visa look at every credit card fraud uh, differently? You know, this is going to be a little bit longer response than you're probably expecting. And I'm going to go back a little bit because I think the answer is different today than it was when I started. So as I mentioned, I was in the Secret Service working big um, credit card fraud cases and uh, basically was uh, offered multiple jobs in private industry with the, the people I worked with. Visa was very appealing to me because it's Visa, right? It's uh, something that everybody uses every day. And I ended up taking the position as director of fraud control of Visa. And that was in 2005. And when I got there, I do think that it was definitely a cost of doing business. I think it was uh, something like five basis points or like a nickel to every hundred dollars was going to fraud. And that was kind of seen as the cost of doing business and okay. However, as online, and obviously let me back a little bit, they were, they were, definitely proactive. They were putting time into it. We were working with them. They were trying to stop it because it wasn't good for business, but they were accepting a certain amount of um, cost. However, now I don't think it's the measure of cost of doing business as much as the impact to the customer and customers choosing not to use it. That's more uh, of an issue to them. Obviously, Fraud rates went up for a while when we first got there, and I'll explain why. When I got to Visa, um, again, uh, online uh, transactions, you know, uh, online fraud, 
happening and you started to see more and more people storing credit card data because uh, overnight processors were coming up. These are, these are areas that would just uh, basically sign up smaller merchants. They would then take the data and then they would send it on to uh, what would be called an acquirer. That's the merchant side. And then they would go to the issuer. So there's a big, uh, the, the credit card industry is very, very large and it, it requires banks to be both acquirers on the merchant side and then issuers issuing credit cards to the consumer. And then beyond that, you've got smaller breakdowns. And merchants were going online. So you'd walk into a cafe that used to not be online and suddenly they would have uh, a terminal and they could take credit cards and it was online. It used to be that you had those cha-chink machines, right? You'd, you'd swipe across. And then uh, over time, you would get credit cards where it used to be they'd swipe it and then they would dial out over a modem and, and, and you know, get the authorization. Over time, when internet was available, broadband, it was just happening all the time. And it was actually a lot of these devices in the early days were storing credit card data the processors were storing credit card data. It was not encrypted. And with that data, you could, what we call, make a fake credit card. You could, you could basically steal the data from the bag stripe. We call it track one, track two. You could steal that information and then use that information to go make counterfeit credit cards. So we really kind of been, you know, 2003 to probably like 2008, saw an explosion of breaches, processors getting hit, merchants getting hit, payment systems getting attacked, payment, um, um, devices. And the credit card companies started their own information security uh, kind of programs for their area. So Visa, for example, had the cardholder information security program, CISP. Uh, Discover had their own, MasterCard had their own, Amex had their own, JCB, all of them had their own. Over time, they realized they kind of conflicted with each other. You could be you know, uh, compliant with one, not the other. So they all came together. And I was part of this. We created what was called the payment card industry data security standard through the Security Standards Council, PCI, DSS, BCI, SSC. A lot of people have heard of this, anybody in information security. And it was the first time really that um, like private sector kind of came together and self-regulated and, and they realized, hey, you know what? It's more important that we just get this under control and people trust the credit card brands and the whole credit card world rather than worry about the fraud rates. And I think even though PCI is painful, it, it, there's a lot of... Um, issues to it. You got to get it compliant to it. It's, it's difficult to deal with. It's, it's great because it was the first time, you know, kind of coming together and self-regulating, coming together and agreeing on a, a schematic, a scheme to um, make it safer to transact. And ultimately, PCI has led to a much more um, secure world where we aren't seeing as much attacks. Like the MagStripe data is no longer used. We've gone to uh, chips um, chip and pin. So basically every transaction you do is different each time. So you can't really steal the data anymore. They're not allowing encryption, uh, the data to be stored unencrypted. They're encouraging merchants and processors, everything not to even have the data. You just, you know, really, um, it just changed. So when you say it today, I wouldn't say it's at all a cost of business. It's actually just something they take very serious and they, and they understand that more for the card brands to continue to be taken and used and grow, they have to be seen as secure and not an inconvenience. Every time you have to reissue your credit card or something gets declined or you're traveling, you can't use your credit card. It's frustrating. And it, that's, that's lost customers to them. Hopefully that answered your question. Yeah, it certainly does. And I just want to build upon that a little bit. So after, after Visa, you, you, you actually joined JPMorgan Chase. You eventually become the director of their credit card investigations team. And as you were just discussing, you help uh, create the, uh, the PCI. And you're, on, you're actually on the board representing JPMorgan Chase on the issuing side. Um, so 
how, how, you know, how, how important was this self-regulation that you just described in improving the fraud rates? And were they really improved? I see a lot of tons and tons of fraud rates at the time over the years. And I think now um, things have changed a little bit to your, to your point. Are we seeing different, different fraud rates in credit card now than, than we have before? Yeah, I mean, I think I was in a very fortunate situation where I started as an agent seeing the attacks, went to, to Visa as a director of fraud control, was able to create an industry standard PCI. Then, as you said, I went to Chase where I was doing info, information security, but I was also the head of all credit card investigations, suspicious activity reporting for all card, you know, uh, remember debit, uh, prepaid, consumer, yeah. corporate, all that. And I was a rep to the PCI council for JP Morgan Chase on the issuing side. So I was able to then, you know, sit on the seat of the banker and, and make sure this worked and made sense and protected the consumers. And if you remember uh, Dan Smith, I think he's been on your show. He and I worked together as well. And he was on the acquiring side. So he was the one saying, okay, how do we you know, protect our merchants? So it was really interesting to, to, to have that dynamic. And I remember Dan and I actually having some arguments in the PCI council against each other. And people were like, you guys are the same bank. But, but we, we, we really were protecting our, our areas, right? I had, to, I had to think of the issuer as in like, hey, how do I keep my consumers um, secure? And he was thinking, hey, how do I keep the merchants secure? And I think it was healthy, right? And we were really talking about what's the best for the industry. And as you see today, and as I, I've said, we're seeing less credit card fraud. It's it, back before... Um, there were rules around it, you know, and this data was available. You could, and everything was done on mag stripes, not the chips that we see today. And so it was the same number every time you were seeing, that's like low hanging fruit, easy for organized crime to go and steal and big bang for your buck. So you saw them stealing credit card data and then they could either run to ATMs and try to cash out. They could get the pin, um, which you could do through phishing, other means, or maybe you, maybe you breach someone who actually had the pins in the clear because pins used to get stolen as well. Or you make fake credit cards, run out and buy things like prepaid cards, which are equivalent to cash, or you know TVs, things that you can sell really quickly. Um, but that's like pretty quick. That's quick money. That's what you want to do. But as we move to chip, you can't do that anymore because it doesn't matter. I can go to the ATM. I can't recreate that. Even if I have a pin, I can't pull the cash out. I can't go make purchases um, in your present. I can go steal your credit card from you, hope you don't report it, and then try to use an ID and try to make a transaction. But that's really difficult. If you have to get merchandise, and you know, get it shipped to you or something like that. It just it just makes it not as easy to get the 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 money, the funds. So it doesn't become something you want to do. So I think PCI and the way the credit cards have responded has made it so today we're not seeing as many of these big breaches where credit card data is gone. However, we are seeing breaches nonstop of other data. Like we're seeing, you know, people going after large. Um, you know, things like uh, the, the, you know, Equifax breach that we all saw, right? That's all my data. Now you can go try to open credit cards in my name. We're seeing attacks on uh, insurance companies, on, on healthcare data. Like they're, they're, the criminals are now going and trying to get other things to go attack industries that aren't as regulated or, or I would say self-regulated. They don't have these standards that are protecting their data. And we're going to see this shift towards that. So I think the credit card industry is a great one to look at because they've done a good job of really kind of um, securing their world. And sadly, we're seeing the shift of the fraudsters going and attacking other areas. Well, see, though, this is a point. I mean, just to clarify, so you, you, you're saying that because the, of the self-regulation in the credit card space and, the, and their success, really, in limiting the, the criminal's ability to commit credit card fraud, those criminals have refocused their efforts in other areas of cybercrime. Yeah. You, you really think that's happening? And that's why we're seeing an uptick in some of this other uh, type of stuff? Absolutely, and I'll make it. I'll make it such an easy analogy. If I live in a street 
and we all have houses. And I decided to put an alarm on my house, some bars in my window, and a large dog in my yard. Are you going to go rob my house or the house next door with no alarm, no bars, and no dog? Huh. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's pretty easy to understand at that point, right? So let's talk about credit card fraud, even mobile payment fraud now as we're looking at things. And this will set us up for the next episode with Eduardo. And I know you guys have been friends for a long time as well. Um, how... How have cryptocurrencies affected mobile payments security in your mind? I mean, this is a whole new uh, space now in, in some respects, and I'm sure criminals are adopting or maybe they're not adopting. I don't know, but what are you seeing in the environment? I, I think cryptocurrencies are new, but they're here to stay. And I think that what we're going to see with cryptocurrencies is more and more people using them because they're, they're easy, they're convenient. You can transact all over the world quickly with them. So we're going to see them. The issue is the security around them. Right now, the way it works is, you know, you use um, some kind of brokerage firm that um, helps you transact in them. But if you lose your username, password, or they get breached and that goes away, you lose that currency and there's no real way to get it back. So I think what we're going to see is people looking for security around that. And, and we're starting to see that emerge. You've got uh, companies coming out that are uh, doing... Um, Digital wallets, so secure wallets. Uh, you know, like uh, I think Bitco is a pretty large one. I think Coinbase uses them. So on the back end, they're they're basically um, like a multi-signature technology. So you know, there's keys involved. You can't just go steal one person's you know username and password. You actually are have to go breach multiple places to get the multiple keys to unlock and steal that. And I I, I know that there is a cryptocurrency security standard CCSS that has come about. So that's going to be similar to PCI. Uh, what they're starting to do is come together and say, okay, cryptocurrencies are working. They're all over the world. We want people to use these and trust these. How do we get it so that there's a security standard that everybody who transacts with these or is a broker or anything like that follows the same standards so that we know that we, you know, basically we put bars on our windows, we put dogs in our yards and we put alarms in our houses so that people will use us and not revert back to credit cards. So, the interesting thing about cryptocurrency is that the money in cryptocurrency is not recoverable during a fraud. So if a fraud happens, there's no way of really recovering and getting your money back. So doesn't it make using cryptocurrencies that much more dangerous when it comes to considerations on, on fraud as far as the cryptocurrency owner goes? Yeah, I definitely think that the cryptocurrency is more dangerous and that's why you need things like the wallets. You need somebody to come in and be that intermediary who's going to give uh, basically keys out, right? Like I said, so you basically say as a customer, I've got some type of key, right? And then the other side has a key. So you can't just come into my house and steal my keys. And basically, if I have my key in my house, and then there's a key that's held by the bank. So you come to my house, you steal my key, you walk into the bank, you can't go in to get into my vault because you need the manager of that bank to also have a key to open my, my lockbox. And that's basically what those wallets are doing, especially when like BitGo, where you look at it, that's what they're doing. They're making it so you can't just go steal part of it. You have to go breach both the bank and the house, which at that point, now you're getting so te technical and, and so much work, you might as well just move on to another area and not attack. And I think that's the issue. Now, the nice thing about cryptocurrency, as I said, it's a public ledger, it's, it's data going around, it's very easy to transact in. Um, it works all around the world, but like you said, if I steal your data and I steal your info and then take that money out, it's just not recoverable. In the credit card world, 
there were clear rules as to how stuff's recovered because at the end of the day, the issuer gives out the card. If you follow these certain rules, the issuer is protected. The acquirer, you know, is on behalf of the merchant. The merchant checks these certain things, they're protected. And whoever didn't do their part basically is responsible and, and the consumer is usually made whole at the end of the day. In cryptocurrency space, it just doesn't work that way because it's not the infrastructure there. The, the cryptocurrency, the whole idea is everybody kind of comes in and it's this, um, I, I buy these tokens, which are a certain value, but there's not really a bank owning those at the end of the day. There's, you know, so it's just a different space. It wasn't created as the banks as a way to give consumers credit out there. Uh, cryptocurrency is more, uh, was created as a way to get a currency that works all over the world and is just not tied to like a government or anything like that. So just very different financial um, just financial, like economic financial background. Uh, so you have a different security approach. Again, that's why I think the cryptocurrencies, they're, they're getting traction. I think they are the wave of the future. We're going to see more of these. And that's why they're getting in front of it now. They have the CCSS uh, coming together. And you're seeing these crypto uh, wallets come out. And I think those are going to be the lifeblood. And that's what's going to make cryptocurrencies successful is if these wallets can do it correctly and make it so that you can tr securely transact in this space. So Tom, that's all we have time for, for today, for this segment. I got to get ready for Eddie, but I really appreciate you coming on the show. We got to do more of these cybercrime domain episodes. They're, they're really great. I think the, the audience really loves them. Thanks for coming on, man. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, George. All right, folks. Uh, we got to take a short break to hear from our sponsors, but don't go away. We'll be right back with more about cybercrime, credit card fraud, and how important intelligence is in the card payment space from Senior Vice President of Risk at Visa, Eduardo Perez, just after these short messages. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Why? Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Higher education faces lots of changes. If you are a student, educator, or in the workforce, you'll want to tune into Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Your host, Dave Goldberg, and his guests will explore the innovations that higher education adopts as it reinvents itself. The world of higher education is constantly changing. Stay on top and stay ahead of the rest. Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. 
If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's Task Force 7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Ritas. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm here with our special guest, Senior Vice President and Regional Risk Officer for Visa's Latin America and Caribbean Divisions, Eduardo Perez. Eduardo, welcome to the show. Hey, George, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to be with you and your audience from Task Force 7. Great, 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 great to have you. So, look, you and I haven't spoken in a while. What's going on over there at Visa? What's new these days? What's the most exciting thing that you guys got going on? Yeah, so we're really excited at Visa, really about the opportunity around uh, mobile payments. And we're seeing an explosion of different types of solutions coming to the marketplace that are really leveraging the technologies that we're bringing to market and that we're using within mobile payment solutions like Apple Pay and Samsung Pay and Android Pay, for example. And uh, the reason we're excited is because those solutions bring three different types of uh, innovations together in one uh, experience for the consumer. In the case of Apple Pay, for example, and Samsung Pay, we're uh, promoting our Visa token service and using our Visa token service that assigns a unique account to each device that um, is linked to that device so that if it's moved to another device, it can't be used on that other device. And then secondly, we're also using and leveraging EMB chip technology, both um, in its contactless uh, form in that setting, but it's also just like in a card setting, it's uh, EMB chip technology allows us the opportunity to, to generate a unique code or a cryptogram for each transaction that it's that is authorized and validated by the issuer in real time. And then finally, what we've seen combined as well is the use of biometrics uh, that allow the consumer to authenticate themselves for the transaction by using their fingerprint, or even in some cases, potentially selfies, or potentially in the future, voice recognition as an example. So we're really seeing an explosion of use cases around mobile payment solutions like Apple Pay and Samsung Pay and Android Pay. And increasingly, we're seeing those solutions used both to for consumers to pay at the point of sale through a contactless experience with the terminal and also using those same technologies to pay in app um, within the applications that consumers choose to put on their mobile devices. So increasingly for an Apple phone, for example, you're able to use Apple Pay for a number of applications that are offered to consumers on their Apple device. And the same applies to Samsung or Android based devices and applications. So we believe that that's definitely going to be um, a great uh, experience for consumers, a secure experience, and it's going to be a fast uh, method of payment as well. So we're excited and we see a lot of opportunities around mobile payments and also in the future using many of those same technologies to promote really the Internet of Things and promote payments across any device any connected device that the consumer uses to choose, everything from washing machines to refrigerators to cars that are going to be able to use uh, combinations of those three technologies that I noted, tokenization, EMB chip technology, and uh, biometrics to more uh, securely allow consumers to make transactions every way, every day, and any way they want to pay. So to me, it's amazing how fast things are transforming in, in this mobile payment space. I mean, things are moving so quickly. And I just saw, I was just reading about Visa's first battery-less dual interface biometric payment card, which is, well, I think you were just talking about this chip and it's contactless enabled as well. It was launched at a, a seamless Middle East conference in Dubai, in the UAE. It's, I think, it, I think. now correct me if I'm wrong, 
But that's Visa's first barrierless dual interface biometric payment device, correct? Yeah, that's one of the first uh, solutions that we're piloting right now with uh, card manufacturer Jamalto and another provider named Kona, where we have two pilots going on right now, one in the U.S. with Mountain America Credit Union and one with a bank in the Middle East, Bank of Cyprus, where we're piloting the solution to see how consumers respond. But we do know that consumers do like to authenticate themselves uh, in a frictionless, in as frictionless manner as possible, and that biometrics definitely offer the opportunity for consumers to both authenticate themselves to the device and at the same time also leverage EMB chip technology, as you were alluding to, George, to continue to generate a secure cryptographic message or unique code that's authenticated by the, by the appropriate issuer through our, uh, our system VisaNet. And what I would just say is that even in this case or in, in these pilots where we're combining EMB chip technology, um, tokenization potentially with uh, devices and biometrics, that uh, we still really value and add tremendous value by authorizing transactions over our Visa network. Our, and as we call it, we call it VisaNet, where we're able to also uh, add to those solutions our Visa Advanced Authorization solution, which scores every transaction in real time using up to 500 different variables that allows us to also then give that information and score to the issuer so that they can more surgically identify any potentially high risk transactions that they would choose to uh, decline. And again, in combination, we believe that these solutions are very secure and that by processing those transactions over VisaNet, we're also providing other intelligence that issuers can then use to more surgically identify those high-risk transactions that they don't want to authorize and uh, to massively authorize all of the good transactions that are flowing through our system. So it seems to me, Eddie, that the pace of digital transformation in the UAE region is really just opening up new opportunities for all kinds of disruptive technologies, especially in the space. So how do you anticipate the reaction of consumers in the UAE when prompted to use fingerprint recognition for payments? What do you think is going to, how do you think they're going to react to that? Well, what we see, George, is that really consumers uh, want to have solutions that are secure, that are fast and convenient. And so we, we want to make sure that we provide enough flexibility within the solutions that we offer so that uh, issuers, acquirers, and third parties can leverage those solutions and our APIs and connectivity to our network so that they could uh, combine those different uh, solutions that we offer in the way that most uh, effectively and efficiently meets their needs. We know that for a lot of low-value transactions, for example, that we don't require and don't need a PIN or a signature for low-value transactions. And that's a good example where we don't want to include any additional friction that's not necessary for the, for the type of transaction that's being conducted. And so, yes, we, we see these pilots as, as offering the opportunity for consumers to authenticate themselves as well using their fingerprint in this case that you're talking about. But those same principles apply across the world. And yes, we do see some cultural differences in terms of what consumers may prefer in one market versus another based on, on their views of, uh, of around payments. But again, we believe that all payments on the Visa network are secure and that the, in combination with these technologies, we're making them even more secure, faster, and convenient. 
So is this technology headed towards the U.S. anytime soon? And, and, and if it is, how, how is digital commerce landscape evolving in the U.S. as it pertains to digital security and cybersecurity? Yes, uh, George, these technologies are, are being really offered already globally, in fact. I mean, uh, let's just start with uh, uh, the card environment, right? Uh, even in the U.S. now, we have most of the cards out there are chip cards, and we're seeing very high rates of usage of chip-on-chip -chip transactions because most of the terminals in the U.S. are also now chip. What we're, what we're seeing now in the U.S. and globally is the evolution of cards to also adopt that, the, those same technologies in their contactless form factor. And so we're seeing more and more cards come to market that are both uh, contact chip enabled and contactless chip enabled. And in some markets like Australia and Canada and other markets, we're seeing very high usage of uh, contactless EMV payments. And those solutions are very secure again because they, um, they leverage EMV chip technology that allows the issuer to generate a unique code for each transaction in real time and to authorize those transactions through our system uh, on a real time basis. So we believe that those transactions are secure, particularly in combination with our Visa advanced authorization solutions and other risk uh, solutions that we offer to our clients where they're able to score those transactions in real time. And most of those transactions, again, are not requiring biometrics, are not requiring a PIN, or not requiring a signature because they're low value transactions. And so we want to eliminate any potential friction where the, the friction is not really adding value for particularly for low value transactions. And then for higher value transactions, potentially biometrics and other solutions in combination can help to also provide uh, users the confidence they may want for higher uh, value transactions. And that's where really we, we can see that uh, these types of solutions around offering biometric authentication on the card potentially offer uh, greater, uh, the consumer greater confidence in using those solutions. And we're also seeing, again, the same technologies being adopted within mobile payments that where, again, we're combining tokenization, we're combining EMD chip technology and biometrics into one solution that's going to allow that consumer to make a, a very secure transaction in any way that they'd like to, to conduct payments, either uh, at the point of sale through a contactless payment or within app or potentially in the future, uh, any number of uh, new ways that, that get conceived by our partners and issuers and acquirers uh, and merchants in the marketplace. So let's switch gears for a second. Let's talk about the Visa threat intelligence. I know a lot of people that are in the payment space, they're going to know what this is right away. But if you're not in the payment space, you might not be overly familiar with Visa threat intelligence. So what is that? Yeah, good question, George. And Visa threat intelligence is a solution that, uh, that we've brought to market through Visa where our clients can connect to us or obtain the service from us directly where we provide our clients what we call indicators of compromise. And we're able to identify those indicators of compromise, things like malware, things like code that we're able to glean from the uh, investigations that we've been part of uh, here at, at Visa and really help to decipher that information from the many forensic investigations that, uh, that we participate in or that uh, we have uh, information on. And use the, that information to bring it together into a, a portal or into a, a system that we have where we can allow our clients to obtain that information and use it to essentially um, scan their systems against those indicators of compromise to determine if they might have similar malware or similar code or similar other indicators that we could provide to our clients 
through visa threat intelligence so that they can use that information to their benefit. And so that is a, an exciting opportunity. And um, I encourage uh, the, your, your listeners to go to our website at visa.com where they can get more information around our visa threat intelligence uh, services. So Visa has a, a very mature and very robust investigative capability, I would imagine. And you, you're probably investigating so many cases with so many uh, customers and clients that you have and business partners that you have. I mean, how valuable is that intelligence that, and you're able to use that to derive these indicators of compromise? Uh, George, good question. And what I would say there is that this information can be very valuable because as you've indicated uh, through the investigations that, we're con- that we conduct or are privy to, we are able to use all of that information, obviously anonymize it. We, we, don't, uh, we never disclose it as it re- any of that information might relate to a specific event, but we're able to anonymize that information, put it into our systems, and then by virtue of that, share that information in as real time as possible with uh, all of the players that are within the payment system or even, or even those that... Uh, are tangential to the payment system that may want this information to regularly scan their systems to determine if they might have any of these indicators of compromise, particularly around any potential malware code or recent indicators that we've determined that could be valuable to the merchant community, the acquiring community, the issuing community, uh, or the the third-party agent community that's involved in the payment system. Uh, We believe that Visa Threat Intelligence is is an effective, uh, good, uh, efficient way for players in the payment system to obtain these indicators of compromise on a real-time or near-real-time basis as we're continuing to put information out there around the latest compromises that, uh, that we see taking place and the learnings from those compromises that we want to make sure all players in the payment system are aware of so that they can quickly identify and try to block some of those attack vectors that we're seeing in the marketplace. A lot of the attack vectors continue to be around weaknesses in remote access Uh, that companies uh, may not be aware of. And we continue to promote, obviously, PCI compliance and two-factor authentication for remote access. But uh, also, uh, importantly, as you know, and I'm sure many of your uh, other uh, uh, individuals that you've interviewed have indicated, also important to focus on patch management um, and being very active there. And then also third-party access to systems continues to be a point of vulnerability. And so, Again, wanting to make sure that uh, companies practice good security hygiene and particularly around those areas that I mentioned. Yeah, so it seems to me just to have access to all that data and have just the visa's visibility into the global payments ecosystems gives you a great advantage over some of these other intelligence products because it it gives you a a uniqueness, I think, and it gives you a differentiator for some of the typical intelligence tools that are out there. Um, what, what What is the Visa ID intelligence platform? What is that? So Visa ID intelligence, that's great. Uh, Another good question that you're asking, George. Uh, And that's really our platform where we're providing authentication services to our participants in the payment system, including issuers, acquirers, uh, and merchants as well, where we're bringing in uh, on our platform third-party providers to provide authentication services through our network. And so uh, examples of that are providing uh, authentication around credentials that increasingly consumers may be asked to validate on their mobile device, for example, or on a device to ensure that that credential is a legitimate credential, like a driver's license, for example, or a passport, or other credentials that uh, lenders or that providers and merchants may want to validate before entering into a relationship with a consumer. 
And so that's one example that, uh, that we see. But yes, our Visa ID intelligence is going to be a platform where we continue to evaluate third-party solutions around authentication and security that we can then provide uh, in a more efficient, effective manner to uh, participants in the payment system. And it could be anything ranging from what I described around credential um, validation to biometrics, uh, voice recognition providers, uh, facial recognition solutions that can be combined with uh, other solutions that I mentioned. So yes, Visa ID intelligence is going to be a very robust platform for our clients to also uh, access those solutions that we've already vetted to ensure that they're secure and they're robust and that they can obtain through our Visa ID intelligence platform. So I went online and I saw this really cool Visa video with Morgan Freeman narrating. And I guess anything that Morgan Freeman narrates is really cool. But it, um, it, was, it was basically talking about the Visa ID intelligence platform and how it was going to be a replacement for passwords and how passwords have failed us in so many different ways. Is the introduction of this type of solution the death knell for passwords? You know, we obviously passwords are going to be in our environment for some time to come. I'm personally always frustrated by the fact that I forget my passwords and that I always have to reset my passwords and that by the time I'm thinking about resetting, usually I've determined that I don't want to conduct the transaction or that I don't want to download that application. So yes, passwords are a point of uh, frustration. We know that uh, that the hackers and criminal groups are constantly trying to trying to hack systems to get passwords and increasingly passwords are creating more friction than the value that they're providing over the long run. And so uh, that's absolutely right, George. We see Visa ID intelligence as being a, a way to offer solutions that are not going to depend on static credentials like passwords that are creating more friction over time than the value that they're providing. And so absolutely, we believe that biometrics and uh, other forms of authentication are really going to offer consumers a more secure, convenient, and fast way to pay and one that's going to generate a, a much higher degree of confidence and uh, allow our consumers to pay in the moment that they want to pay, as opposed to having to reset a password uh, and by that time usually uh, abandoning the, the transaction overall because of the frustration that it's caused to have to reset a password. How many times do you forget your passwords, George? All the time. All the time, man. <laughs> I mean, you have so many of them. I mean, I can't keep track of them all anymore. I mean, these password managers are coming out. I guess everyone's trying to use these password managers, and I think they, there's some really good solutions there to help manage this password nightmare. Um, but it, it clearly, I mean, forgetting passwords and the amount of money that, that corporations are spending on people forgetting their passwords is really astronomical. I mean, and, and, and there's, a, there's studies going out now that's saying, you know, not have people change their passwords, you know, every so often, every peri uh, periodically, because it's actually costing more um, and it's, it's creating more problems than it's just solving. So uh, I think, you know, to your point, the password problem is huge. Um, I think we are going to start moving away uh, from that and with these introduction, these other solutions like Visa ID intelligence. So if we go cashless, how's that going to affect money laundering and other illegal activities? I mean, it's going to make it harder for criminals to operate. I mean, it, it, won't they just adopt new strategies that move into the digital space? Are you preparing for that? So George, I mean, absolutely. Obviously criminal groups are not going to rest on their lower levels and they're constantly thinking of new ways to attack the, the financial system. And so we're going to continue to remain vigilant and, uh, really focus on leveraging our breach intelligence. Uh, we have a fraud disruption investigations team that uh, continues th to think about uh, new attack vectors and how we're going to proactively mitigate those before they're, they're, um, they're leveraged or they're exploited. And so 
absolutely, we believe digital payments will help to create a, a better, more secure, more robust uh, payment system. And, uh, but we also know that uh, criminal groups and fraudsters are going to continue to try to look for different ways to attack the system. So we all have to remain vigilant in uh, staying true to uh, protecting our systems and protecting the sensitive data that, uh, that we use to transact. So look, Eddie, I know you got to go. So uh, I really appreciate you coming on, spending some time with us, and I hope you come back soon. Hey, George, it's been great being with you and with your audience at Task Force 7. It's a real honor to be with you. And yes, look forward to the opportunity to speak to you and your audience again in the future. Thank you very much. No, you're certainly welcome. Thanks for coming on. So we've run out of time, folks. But before we go, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 